the ninth chapter of Isaiah, and we'll begin reading in the first verse. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Father, we pray now that from this passage you would come by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, and that you, Father, You, Son, You, Holy Spirit, would be to us wonderful Counselor, speaking to us Your truth that gives us wisdom and light and clarity and even power to live it out. Do that for us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the more striking scenes of Christmas is set a little after that evening of the baby's birth as the magi or wise men came from the east bearing gifts for the newborn king. These gifts and these men have captured the imagination of Christians for centuries, being memorialized in paintings and poems and nativity sets and songs. And their gifts capture our imagination as well. Not least because their gifts are suggestive to us as we think about what it is that we have to give to the Lord Jesus, what it is that we have to bring to the child of Bethlehem, and in our case, perhaps how our missions offering might be our gift to him. So it's a significant part of Christmas to think about gifts to be given to the child of Bethlehem, and I'm sure you've been thinking about that. But at an even deeper level, even closer to the heart of Christmas, is the fact that far above any gift that we might bring to him, Christmas is, of course, at its core, a celebration of God's gift to us, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, or as we have it here in Isaiah 9, verse 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And so Christmas is most profoundly about the gift of Christ, even more so than about our gifts to Christ. But then also in our text this morning, we should note as well that when the Son of God is sent as a gift... 
to us, when Christ himself comes as the Christmas gift, he also comes bearing even further gifts with him from heaven's storehouses. Did you notice that in the first seven verses of Isaiah 9? At the core of this passage, of course, like the trunk of a great tree, is the gift. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And so here is the gift of Christmas, Christ himself, but then spreading out in this passage, spreading out from this great tree trunk, and this will be our focus this morning, springing out from the tree trunk of Christ like fruit-heavy branches are all sorts of corollary gifts as well. Gifts that come with Christ. Gifts that he comes bearing for us. And as we meditate on this passage together, we're going to find four of them. Four fruits of Christ's coming. Four gifts that Christ came to bring us. Four blessings of our Savior's advent. And you'll find them in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. Those Four verses present four blessings that God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 2, light. Verse 3, gladness. Verse 4, freedom. And verse 5, peace. And if you trace those verses and those gifts like the arms of a tree back to the heart of the passage, you'll find that Those four gifts terminate in this sentence. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. There will be light, verse 2, and gladness, verse 3, and freedom, verse 4, and peace, verse 5, for, verse 6, or because a child will be born to us. Because a son will be given to us. Meaning that the son is the tree trunk. The son is the source. The baby in the manger is the giver, the bringer of these gifts. Because Christ came, light came. Because Christ came, gladness came, and freedom came, and peace came, and they are coming still with him. And so let's think about these gifts together, these gifts of Christ to us for a few moments this morning, beginning in verse 2 with the Christmas gift of light. Light. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, Isaiah has just been speaking in verse 1 about the northern reaches of Israel, which had become a religious mixed bag with a good deal of paganism and a good number of pagans creeping in among those who were Abraham's descendants. So that Isaiah calls this region Galilee of the Gentiles. Not just Galilee of the Israelites who were settled there, the the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, but Galilee of the Gentiles. And these Gentiles, verse 2, these pagans, these men and women, boys and girls, who do not know the God of Israel are, says Isaiah in verse 2, the people who walk in darkness. They are those who live in a dark land. They walk in spiritual ignorance and blindness, darkness, just like a man walking out into the forest on a murky night with no lantern. Have you ever been out in the countryside where there are no street lights 
and no glow from nearby shops or houses. Have you ever been in such a place in the pitch black of a cloudy night? It can be unnerving, especially if you're a city slicker like me. You can't tell exactly where you are. You can't see where you're going from step to step. You don't have much idea what dangers might be lurking around you. And so it's, it's frightening and it's confusing and it is really ignorance of your surroundings. And the Gentiles are walking in that sort of darkness, verse 2, when it comes to the matters of the soul. And not just those Gentiles who lived in Galilee, verse 1, but all Gentiles, even today, who don't know the God of Israel. And including, in fact, ethnic Jewish people who are, because of their own ignorance of God, spiritually Gentiles. There are people all around us who are walking in spiritual darkness, spiritual ignorance and confusion and danger. And we were with them before we met Christ. Now it's true that having lived their whole lives in darkness, many people have become quite comfortable with it. They're not afraid of the dark, in other words. They've put to the back of their minds many of the fears that they would have if they had been plunged into the darkness suddenly. So... They may not think all that much about where they really are with God and whether they should be concerned about that or about whether they have any notion of where they're headed on this life's journey or what will await them at the journey's end. Or they may not be thinking about whether or not there may be an abyss gaping before them at any given step. But just because they're not afraid of the dark, just because they're not afraid of their ignorance, or even if they should claim that they're not in the dark and that they're really just fine spiritually, the reality is that whether confidently or blithely, people who do not know God, people who are estranged from Him in their sin are walking in great spiritual darkness. Which is why we should not be surprised or thrown for a loop when they don't think like we do. Or react to certain things the way that we might. They cannot yet see what we, who were once blind ourselves, have been able by grace to see. The lights haven't been turned on, and so they live, whether or not they realize it or not, whether or not they're scared of the dark or not, they live in a dark land. But, says the prophet, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. For, verse 6, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And this son is coming into the world, in other words, as light. As a candle that enables people in the darkness to see. As a lantern that dispels ignorance. As a lamp that brings our folly and our sin and our danger into plain view so that we might turn from them and turn to God and His remedy. Christ has come so that those who walk in darkness, the people who walk in darkness, might see and might know the truth and might be delivered from the degradation of a life lived in ignorance of God. And so it's no accident that God planted this lantern, this tree. God planted this Son of His in Galilee 
of the Gentiles where the people walked in darkness. God sent his son almost from the outset to this place of great lostness. Yes, he was born in Judea of the Jews, but he was raised and performed much of his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. Among those who were in darkness as a precursor and a portrait of the places and the people among whom he would still be ministering 2,000 years later. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Christ did not come into the world just to pal around with those who can see, those who have it all figured out spiritually. He'd have been mighty lonely, a matter of fact, if that had been what he came to do. But no, he came so that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. He came to dispel the shadows and to drive away our ignorance and enable us to see and in seeing to turn our footsteps toward God. And not just for Galilee of the Gentiles, but for Gentiles, for the blind and the lost, in any place and in every place where lostness and darkness may be found. And that means he came for the likes of me and my darkness. And he came for the likes of you and your darkness as well. If you're here this morning and you find yourself groping seeking, grasping for something to hold on to because you don't really know where you really are in this world or where you're headed or what danger may await you at your journey's end. You realize somehow you've come to see that you're in the dark. If that's you, I say to you today, reach out for the hand of Christ and He will switch on the lights for you. He will turn on the flashlight. He will make sense of life for you. The sun will rise in your life. The darkness will be blown away. And you'll be able to see spiritually. And to run to God. And to walk in this world with confidence. And I say to you today. Even if you aren't groping in the dark. Even if you don't realize just how dark the room of your life really is so that you're not actually reaching out and looking for something to hold on to, even still, you're in the darkness. And I urge you to believe the Word of God this morning and own the fact that you're in the dark spiritually and reach out for Christ and you'll be surprised at how little you actually saw all these years and at what Christ will reveal to you when He turns the lights on. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. That's why we have a Christmas. That's why Christ came. And I urge you to take him up on the gift that he offers of light to those who come to him. And then in the second place, not only has Christ come bearing the gift of light, but also bearing the gift of gladness. In verse 3, gladness, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. One of the effects of being estranged from God is not only that we walk in darkness, in spiritual ignorance, but also that we don't know fullness of joy. Sometimes, apart from Christ, there's out-and-out gloom, And verse 1. And at other times, as with getting used to the darkness, 
When we live our whole lives without joy, without the highest joy, which is to be found in Christ, sometimes, just like the darkness, we get used to settling for lesser joys, too. Some of them illicit, some of them banal, some of them legitimate and God-given, but not the highest joys. But nothing this world affords apart from Christ can bring the gladness that comes with him. And every legitimate joy that this world does afford is seen in its best and true luster when seen in the light of Christ. So think about those wise men who came from a distant country following that unusual star and finally finding that it had set its pole right above a little boy in a stable in Bethlehem. These were men of great learning. And they were men with access to great wealth, as evidenced by the gifts that they brought. And they were men who had great opportunity to travel, which for me would be worth more than the gold or probably even the learning. And so these men had experienced a good many of this world's legitimate treasures. But I have no doubt that as they made their journey home from Bethlehem and as they came back to their families and their associates and as they grew old and had time to reflect on their lives, there is no doubt in my mind that the tale they told most, the experience they relished the most, the joy they found to be the highest was not the gold that they had access to or the learning that they had or the travel that they'd done. They surely found as the highest joy, the greatest moment in their lives, the moments that they spent around that crib in Bethlehem, peering down on this king whom even the heavens were announcing to them. And I'm sure that having experienced this greatest gladness, these men went home and had a greater appreciation for all other legitimate joys and began to see foolish and illicit joys with far less luster. Isn't that what happens when a person meets Christ? Certain other joys lose their luster, and then other joys, being moved out of the main limelight and into their proper and legitimate place, actually become more pleasurable because now we know what true pleasure is. Our pleasure receptors have been opened wide, and that's what the text says there in verse 3, does it not? Christ has come to bring the gift of joy. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The joy that is found in Christ is compared with the joy, verse 3, of when a dread enemy is finally defeated and the victors are now dividing up all the goodies after the battle. You shall increase their gladness as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And it's compared to the joy of the harvest, which doesn't mean as much to most of us living like we do in modern city life. But, you know, when so much of the year's effort and sweat and prayer and so much of a given town or region's livelihood has been invested into the local crop, And now, finally, at the harvest time, the crop has come in. No blight has destroyed it. No plague has ruined it. No drought has dried it up. No locusts have carried it away. No storm has beaten it down. But God has blessed 
and the silos are beginning to be filled, and there's not going to be any economic crisis this year, and the winter will not be a meager one. The town holds a feast on that day, does it not? And a great Thanksgiving dinner. And such is the gladness of the coming of Christ. For not just a little town on the plains, but the entire world is dependent upon this seed bearing fruit, dependent on this child being born, depending on this harvest coming in, dependent on this Savior coming into the world. And when the news reaches that He has come, and when you begin to reap the rewards and feed on the blessings of His coming, well then there is feasting and there is gladness. Which again is why we have Christmas. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. This is why we have feasts. This is why we give gifts. This is why we have parties. This is why we put on concerts. This is why we eat chocolate so much every year in December. We celebrate at the harvest in November, don't we? But we have an even bigger celebration, much bigger, when we remember that God has given us not just this year's corn and wheat, but the living bread that came down out of heaven. And so Christmas is about joy. Christ came to bring us joy. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. So then, Christ's gifts include light and gladness, and then thirdly, freedom in verse 4. Freedom. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Now just picture the man described here in verse 4. He has a staff on his shoulders, weighing down upon him like a yoke, and he's being prodded along from behind with a rod by his oppressor. Did you see all that in verse 4? A staff, a rod, an oppressor, and a man trudging along under these burdens. It's the portrait of a slave. He's got the staff on his shoulders because he's using it to carry on either end maybe buckets of sand or jugs of water or casks of wine or such like. And they're not his buckets of sand. They're not his jugs of water. They belong to his oppressor, to the man with the stick behind him. And so grimly he trudges along in bondage, in slavery to another human being. So picture the Israelites in Egypt. Or picture them in the days that were soon to come upon them when Isaiah wrote, when many of them would be marched off into Babylon. That's what Isaiah is describing here. But with the coming of the Messiah... With the birth of the Christ child announced in this passage, God was going to break these yokes and splinter these staffs on people's shoulders and release men and women from their bondage and grant them freedom. You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. 4 verse 6, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Christ was coming to bring freedom. Now, as we think about freedom here, we should note the two prior blessings, the two prior gifts from Christ to his people were clearly inner things, spiritual things. The Gentiles' darkness is a spiritual darkness. It's not a literal blotting out of the sun. It's a spiritual darkness. And the conquering light 
is a spiritual light as well. And then in verse 3, gladness, of course, is also an inward thing and not necessarily a change in outward circumstances. And so the two prior blessings were spiritual blessings. And if we read of what happened when the baby of Bethlehem finally came, when the long-expected one of verse 4 finally came, and if we look to see what sort of freedom he brought when he came that first time around, we will find that this too was a spiritual blessing, a spiritual freedom. When we look at this passage, we can understand why many in Jesus' day may have expected that the Messiah would come and deliver Israel from under the thumb of Rome. That's what this passage sounds like at first. But Christ's mission at his first coming was to bring spiritual light and spiritual gladness and spiritual freedom as well. He didn't come to overthrow Rome or to get Israel out from under their grip. And You know, far from being a disappointment that Christ did not come that first time to break the temporal bonds of slavery, it's actually an example of Christ doing us better than we might have thought. Because it's better to be set free spiritually, even than it is to be set free from earthly temporal bonds. And those who have experienced both kinds of slavery, I have no doubt, would attest to that fact. It is a far worse thing to be enslaved to sin. Self-will, lust, deceitfulness, pride, anger, laziness, you name it. It is far worse to be enslaved to these things than to be owned even by the cruelest human being. And in saying that, I'm not minimizing the horrors of chattel slavery, not for a moment. And I realize that in many cases, enslavement to sin seems not all that unpleasurable, while enslavement to another person can be a lifetime of horror. I understand that, but the reality is that while a cruel human master may hold you captive and make your life miserable for 70 or 80 years in this life, he cannot touch you behind the gra- beyond the grave. You may feel that your life is a living hell, because of a spiritual or because of an earthly master, but he cannot make your life an actual hell. But enslavement to sin can and does. Enslavement to sin, if we are not liberated it, will not liberated from it, will not only last the same seventy or eighty years as chattel slavery, but will drag us down into the lake of fire forever afterwards. And so while it might not seem so on the surface of things for those 70 or 80 years, enslavement to sin is actually far worse than enslavement to a cruel human master. And so it's a good thing, not a disappointment, when we realize that Jesus came not to emancipate Israel from Rome, but to liberate them from spiritual bondage. Because this is an emancipation better by far. And this is what he has come to do for us as well. God looked down on us from heaven as he did with the Israelites in their bondage in Egypt and he saw on our shoulders the staff of oppression, the yoke of sin dragging us down and he saw us trudging along not half so vigorously as we ought and he sent his son to break the staff on our shoulders and to lift the yoke of sin off of our necks. And what that means is that because Christ has come and lived sinlessly where we have not, and died for our sin in our place, and risen from the dead on the third day. What this means is that sin, because of Christ, no longer has mastery over us. 
We're no longer under the rod, the yoke, or the staff anymore. Sin's penalty has been assuaged, drunk down by Christ on our behalf, so that we bear it no more, as Spafford put it. And not only do we bear sin's penalty no more, but also its power, according to verse 4, is no longer a yoke that we are forced to wear either. We sometimes choose to put it on, fools that we can still often be, but we do not have to keep sinning if we belong to Christ. Our old self, Romans 6, 6, was crucified with Him, with Christ, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And that is what Isaiah is saying in beautiful poetic language here in verse 4 about Jesus. You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. Without Christ, before he has come and rescued us from ourselves, we can't not sin. It's our very nature to sin. But in Christ, we are free and we are given a new nature that has the ability not to sin. St. Augustine put it like this, By nature, I was not able not to sin. In Christ, I am able not to sin. And in glory, I will not be able to sin. By nature, I was not able not to sin. In Christ, I am able not to sin. And in glory, I will not be able to sin. And these latter two abilities, the ability not to sin and someday the glorious inability to sin, are the freedom purchased for us by the baby in Bethlehem who became the man of Golgotha. And don't you want to be free from your sin? You can be in Christ. You can overcome if you will turn to Christ. It's true The old man, crucified though he may be, will still squirm there on the cross looking for opportunities to reach out and grab hold of sin wherever he can. But if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature and is thus able to resist temptation and sin. We're no longer enslaved, in other words. We can overcome through Christ. And I urge you to do it. To consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. To consider yourselves, Isaiah 9, 4, no longer a slave, but free. And if you are free, then you can lay aside that sin which so easily entangles you. And you can sin no more in that way. You really can overcome. Then I urge you to do it in the power of Him of whom it is written, you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. And so Christ has come as the gift, and he has come himself bearing gifts with him. Light, verse 2. Gladness, verse 3. Freedom, verse 4. And in the final place today, peace in verse 5. Peace. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Now that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? All the army jackets and all the military boots being gathered into a big burn pile in the town square and sent heavenward in smoke and ash. Not out of disrespect for those who sacrifice, but as a kind of celebration that they will never have to fight again. 
It's the same reason why back in chapter 2, Isaiah spoke of hammering swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Because a day was coming, brought on by the Messiah of Bethlehem, when the implements of battle and the garb of battle would be forever obsolete. Christ has come, in other words, to bring peace on earth, as the angels sang it out over in Luke chapter 2. And we should say once again that there's a spiritual aspect to this gift as well. Because just as the greatest slavery is not temporal slavery, so also the greatest war is not temporal war. Not war between nations or tribes or factions. The greatest war is the war that we in our sin have declared on our maker. That's the sort of language Paul uses in Colossians 1 when he speaks of the lost person being hostile in mind toward God. We are hostile toward God in our sin. By our sin, we've taken up an offensive position against the Almighty. By our rebellion, we are the ones wearing the army jackets and the military boots and carrying the swords and spears and marching upon heaven's orders or upon heaven's gates and against heaven's instructions. But a child was born to us. A son was sent out from heaven's gates to quell the rebellion. Not in that first coming by trampling his enemies down, but by winning them back as his friends. So that Paul can write in Romans 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as Isaiah puts it here and in chapter 2 as well, we can lay down our weapons and turn them into farm implements for that matter, and we can throw our battle gear into the fire because the war with God is over if we're in Christ. Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. No wonder he is called the Prince of Peace at the end of verse 6. And here in verse 7 is a peace that will carry on into the golden days of eternity. Glory to God in the highest, the angel said, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Do you have this peace? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Have you encountered Christ in such a way that no longer is your heart raging against God and chafing against His ways, but that you also know that because of the sacrifice of Christ, He no longer has any anger to pour out on you? Do you have peace with God? You may, if you will but entrust yourself to this Christ who absorbed God's anger against our sin on the cross so that God has no anger left to pour out on us and all is peace. That's what Christ was doing there on the cross, wasn't it? Dying for his people, for all who would come to trust in him, receiving in his own body the just wrath of God against our sin so that having poured out our punishment on Jesus, God's justice would be satisfied and he would no longer need to pour it out on those of us who believe in his son. In other words, so that we would have peace with God instead of enmity with God. And so, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will have peace with God. 
But now let me pause and ask about this peace in Isaiah 9 before we finish. Does Christ's mission of peace, as described here, and just in general, does Christ's mission of peace have to do just with men laying down their arms in the spiritual war against God and with God's own anger being absorbed on the cross? Or is there some promise here also that men will finally lay down their arms against one another? Well, you maybe have picked up in a couple of places in these last couple of points, maybe you've picked up on me speaking about what Christ would or wouldn't do at his first coming. And that's been purposeful because the blessings that we have talked about thus far from Isaiah 9 have mainly been the blessings associated with Christ's first coming. But I think you will agree with me after we think it out for a few moments that this passage speaks in all four cases about promises that, yes, we have already received if we are in Christ because of his first coming, but it also speaks about blessings that we have not received fully. We've been talking about blessings we've already got under our tree, so to speak, but blessings that we haven't received yet fully. The gifts promised in this passage, light, gladness, freedom, peace, are things that we possess and things that we still long for. We haven't received them in their fullness. We haven't got all the light that we'll ever have. We haven't got all the gladness, all the freedom, or all the peace yet that God has prepared for those who love him. Which is why I've spoken a couple of times about what we receive at Christ's first coming. But now I must remind you that these gifts, so marvelous already, will only be intensified in the glory when Christ comes again. Do we have light now? Absolutely. We're no longer blind. We're no longer walking in the dark. We're no longer spiritually ignorant and confused like we once were. We can say with John Newton, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And yet, though we have light and though we can see, we must also confess with Paul that we now see, yet in a mirror, dimly. We don't see, in other words, all that we will see. We're like that blind man in Mark 8 whose eyes Jesus touched and he went from seeing nothing at all to seeing people like trees walking around. And it was marvelous, I'm sure, to go from seeing nothing to seeing something, even if it wasn't yet full sight. But then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes the second time and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And isn't that a microcosm of Jesus' works on our behalf in general? He came that first time and he brought very real, very wonderful gifts with him for which we are glad. But soon he is going, as with the blind man's eyes, to touch this world the second time and complete the good work which he has begun. So that if he has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light now, how much more light will you have? How much more will the shadows of doubt, how much more will the darkness of ignorance be blown away when he comes again? Then we will understand Isaiah 2 all the more. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And in verse 3, if there's gladness in Christ now, what will the joy be like when he comes again? In that day, even more than in this one, 
He will increase their gladness, and they will be glad. We will be glad in his presence. And if Christmas is such a great fulfillment of that promise of gladness, what will it be like in the new earth when we are celebrating after Christ has come again? And the same can be said about freedom in Christ in verse 4. Today, as we said earlier and as Augustine put it, today we are able not to sin. But in that day when He comes again, we will not be able to sin at all. And in that day, every human oppression will have ended as well. You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. And of course, back to where I began this excursus on the second coming, a day is coming... When Christ comes the second time, a day is coming when not only will individuals lay down their weapons and burn their boots which, with which they marched against God, but also when the wars between men and nations and conflicts between men and women and violence in the streets and in the homes, all of them will be at an end forever. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For in that day, the government of Christ, which has begun now in the hearts of the redeemed, will exert itself over every acre of the planet. And, says the Lord over in chapter 11, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So praise God, like the man in Mark 8, for Jesus' first mighty intervention on our behalf. And wait expectantly, brothers and sisters, for him to come the second time. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this.